Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the City Centric Podcast. My name is Josh, I am your regular host and I'm happy that you're still with us. So before we get on with the show, I wanted to bring to everyone's attention some news from Centric Lab. In 2017, early 2017, we started conversations with the Future Cities Catapult, a UK government-related organisation that are on a mission to advance urban innovation and to grow UK companies to make cities better. They were interested in whether neuroscience is a field of research that can be a new evidence base and toolkit to make cities better. Sticking to their mission of bringing together businesses and universities to solve the problems that cities face, we were commissioned alongside our partners at University College London to produce a document on its potential. What started out as a report became a playbook. Playbook is there to give agency to practitioners to take into account more nuances of how the built environment affects experience. It is primarily set to establish what is the role of neuroscience in the built environment and where its limitations are, where its opportunities are right now. And it's also a framework for where it can go in the future. Throughout the document, there are ways in which anyone from a real estate developer to a technologist, an architect, an engineer, and an urban planner can understand how they can enhance the user experience of their built environment by taking into some scientific knowledge into their daily routine. It was launched last week at the Urban Innovation Centre in Clerkenwell, which is in London, and it's already going down to a great success. So we'd like to sort of spread the word a little bit more. You can download a free copy just by heading over to the FCC website, which is futurecities.catapult.org.uk and see it from their homepage. Right, so on to today's show, another format shake-up. This time, Araceli Camargo, who is the Lab Director for Centric, joins as we talk with Alex Fafega about AI, racial bias, and discussing some of his projects concerned with ensuring that decision-making from an urban and social perspective is inclusive and not just one-directional. So Alex is founder and head creative technologist of Kamutsi Lab, which is an experimental R&D agency working at the intersection of emerging technology and humans. Some of their clients include the BBC and the National Health Service here in the UK. Also on the side, he runs a project called Creative Hustle, which is an award-winning educational platform for individuals from underrepresented groups. Alex is wise beyond his years, fiercely intelligent and incredibly patient, which makes him just actually a really good person to talk to in any basis. He's a very popular speaker at events. His coverings of AI and racial bias and ethics is a huge, huge topic that needs to be talked about more, and he's a very eloquent person on that. He's also on a constant hustle. It doesn't appear that he sleeps. He works very hard, so rather than me talking a little bit more about Alex, let's actually get him to talk more about AI, ethics, racial bias, inclusivity, and what that means for technology, and what that means for uh, social systems, and what that means for developing cities that are inclusive, what we all really want in the 21st century. Excellent. I'm sitting here on a lovely Friday afternoon in a dark room whilst it's nice and sunny outside. Sitting here with uh, Alex Fefega of Camusi, and I'm sitting here with Araceli Camargo of the Centric Lab. So, um, Araceli, your name has been thrown into a couple of podcasts and conversations uh, along this series, but I've probably done a disservice to you at every stage. So, can you give uh, an all, the audience an introduction to, to who you are and why you're doing what you're doing at Centric? Um, can I make myself the Wizard of Oz of Centric? I w- that's that's my role. I'm the person behind the curtain. <laughs> um, and the, um, so yeah, so I do cognitive neuroscience, and um, the dream of setting up Centric was to make our habitats and the places that humans inhabit healthier. Because as far as the research goes, 
it indicates that we are at tipping point and from a health perspective from a psychological perspective and from an ecological perspective i.e are we're running down our resources our cities and habitats are making people sick and a lot of the diseases that are heavily in the news such as the different types of cancers um, immune-based system um, diseases and also things like dementia are actually preventable. They are down to how we're making and creating our habitats. And so I wanted to be on that side of the supply chain, on the prevention side. Excellent. Hard-hitting introductions to who you are. Uh, Alex, uh, your turn. Can you tell us a little bit more about who you are? Um, I mean, I've given a brief description as to what you're up to, but can you tell me a little bit about your personal journey? Why you, what wakes you up in the morning and says, I've got to get up and do this? Well, first, it's for people like yourself that pronounce my surname really well. I appreciate you for that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so Kamizi is a, we frame it as an experimental research agency that's working at the intersection of emerging technologies and humans. And so essentially that experimental research a lot of times gets taken apart of what that is. It really is design research. However, trying to use experimental ways. So not only doing stuff like user interviews or like a focus group, it's more about trying to come up with different ways of how we can get in research. But the key goal is really about implementing a human layer to emerging technology development. Because technology traditionally is very developed in silos and then it's put out to the world and then the world has to embrace it. However, with challenges about artificial intelligence or virtual reality or augmented reality, there are you know, plot holes and particular challenges in there. I mean, we need to, so we, we try to frame this argument of bringing humans in the beginning stage of the development journey and trying to develop a future that would benefit everyone and would not marginalize those at the fringes of society. So, you know, bigger for me is really about trying to change the way how we develop technology and we develop products and, you know, like I said, bringing a human layer to technology development. Awesome. One of the things you're doing at the moment is a lot of research into the AI and the responsibility of AI in autonomous vehicles and sort of mobility, particularly with uh, car-based systems. Can you talk a little bit more about what you're looking at, some of the research, some of the findings, um, and yet yeah, where, where you feel points of this research needs to hit market or industry or just general consumer knowledge? Um, so initially it started around looking about the sort of ethical implications of things like autonomous vehicles, where we talk about the trolley problem, and you've got this, somebody in an autonomous car, a child runs into the street, and you're like, what does the car do? You've got a group of pers- group of people, four people across on the other side, you've got an elderly couple on the other side. What happens in that situation? Does the autonomous vehicle, is programmed, is it to swerve? If it swerves, who does it hit? Does it hit the elderly? individuals or does it hit the four young people and those are like ethical challenges which as you're programming this autonomous systems these are the things you have to discuss when we're sort of designing this whole ux of autonomous cars you know and so the, the challenge there is like you know we have to program autonomous vehicles to kill you know which is a very if you're a developer the code um, you know programming you know the algorithms this might be a very uncomfortable experience. But when we think of cars, if human mistakes, we can potentially cause an accident. And so we have to prepare ourselves for that. So that was like a first step. And then there was like a few opportunities to sort of develop, how do you develop the roads to basically accommodate autonomous vehicles? Because the roads would have to change to work for that. 
So looking at those ethical implications of autonomous vehicles, it was trying to like in, redesign the roads or implement high-tech solutions that, are, that can sort of reduce those accidents. So one of the ideas we had, which we're still currently working on, was trying to find a way how to use gate analysis, so to implement some sort of gate analysis system into the road that sort of when people step on it, it could somehow signal to the autonomous vehicle, there's people around here, slowed up. So doing things like that, is particularly when you look at the incident with the autonomous car, um, with Uber, for example, um, you know, and you could see from the research was there, the little issues that was going on, for example, there wasn't two drivers. When you're testing autonomous vehicles, they always say two drivers is pretty important because if one person is distracted, the other person would be able to realise. In that current incident there, it was one person in the car and it was at late night. So even then, it's very hard for the autonomous vehicle to really detect or see. And, you know, so there's so much, still so much questions there that that's where a lot of my work is really focused on is trying to how do we sort of introduce these vehicles to the world but how do we also make sure we've explored all the potential problems before we even do so i think one of the interesting points you just mentioned was the uh as you say sort of the gate analysis tool that you're starting to actually remove the responsibility of autonomous vehicles actually on the vehicle systems and start to look at it well what is the city responsibility to work with so what different layers of infrastructure uh from from human to different kind of for want of a better phrase like smart city infrastructure can communicate so you start to actually ask more evaluating questions of the responsibility of autonomous vehicles with cities rather than responsibility of AVs and mobility. So within that sort of, what are the other sort of network factors that you're looking at when it comes to, well, let's look at the future of cities if we start to introduce uh, autonomous vehicles and what that might mean from a human and a technology basis? So one of the things you talked about was infrastructure, which I had to pronounce right. I don't want to screw myself up in this podcast, but... um, You're in friendly company, don't (laughs) worry. (laughs) Well, one of the, the challenges there is that you've got this current sort of systems in place that already work and what it is is like the solution has to fit in with this current infrastructure they can't you because of the level of investment that's already been made or the level of sophisticated networks especially with the road system in this country high level sophisticatedness and it's like how autonomous vehicles you know you've got a that's one of the challenges we saw with this, with this current project is that we were like, okay, we're going to look at rural areas because, for example, rural areas is probably, an, in terms of like technology, is actually really underdeveloped compared to like an urban area like London or Birmingham. The rural areas, there's still a 4G problem there. You're still looking at how you can implement sort of satellite systems and awesome it's the systems yes I believe it is around how do you implement 4G so one of the ideas was like putting stuff on top of their spires or the tips at churches I'm I'm so wrong here but the stuff on top of churches and trying to implement 4G there so we decided in this particular project when we proposed it was to look at rural areas just as an experimental thing to see so there's still loads of challenges there you still need the technology infrastructure to be developed then you need to change the road infrastructure as well then you need to educate people as well because let's say we design this gate analysis system and we say we we design it on a zebra crossing for example one of the things is that human behavior not necessarily everybody crosses on a zebra crossing you know we might cross under other side of the road um, 
and then the challenges there is how do you facilitate that or how do you be aware of that how do you bring those things in so there's loads of like all of these different challenges and it's quite hard essentially because when you don't have time to explore these things it's like you've got to, you're always pressured to come up with some sort of solution that works and there's still a lot of discussions that need to be had on that level to order to facilitate that how are you finding industry balancing those questions that are coming the need to actually stop and address things before running ahead with what they want to build and play with and sell I think it's interesting because I think that's where the government comes in Um, you know and I think the government has written some reports on futures of cities or futures of roads and um, things like that because uh, I know in, in, in the project we took a lot of inspiration from those reports. Um, I can't remember them off my off the name of my head, but you know it is like industry working with government to facilitate that because it's not industry that owns roads or maintains the roads or you know. So it's like how do you have this cross collaboration between industry, researchers, and government and how does that work in a way that works for both parties so there still needs to be better conversations between both if the government's saying or from what i've seen in the news reports that 2019 would have driverless lorries on the road and stuff the question is how does that work how do you even facilitate that you know if we look at the dlr which is semi-autonomous the successful thing of the dlr is because of there is an infrastructure in place that allows it to operate in that sort of its own universe, its own interconnected system and we bring in driverless cars into where we don't have that, what is, does the system change, how do we develop that so there's so much conversation that needs to happen between industry and governments in order to sort of implement that. Yeah, I think there was a lot of that uh, conversation and narrative at COGX, uh, which was a recent sort of AI blockchain uh, conference that was held here in London. We bumped into each other. Yeah. Uh, sadly, I couldn't make it to your talk, but you were on a panel talking a little bit, not necessarily about sort of government responsibility, uh, but can you tell a little bit more what you were focusing on there? And um, yeah, then actually afterwards, your opinion on the, the event in total. Okay. Um... My panel was uh, was actually about the more human education and artificial intelligence. So, um, which is interesting. Which so the other individuals on the panel were from like a educational background using artificial intelligence. One was using artificial intelligence in education. Another, I think, is also doing the same. Where another wrote a book about human education and artificial intelligence. So it was very. It was a very interesting panel because I was like I was like the technologists on that panel and where my sort of construction of education was more about all of these changes are happening you know I'm, I'm right here on this podcast with you Josh and Araceli and we're having this really thought intellectual conversation but there are many people in, in who walk past Centric Lab the Cube on a day to day I don't even know that these conversations exist and it was like for us to even for us for people to have their own viewpoint on what role, you know, let's say autonomous systems should have in their life, they need to understand this. And that led to one of the projects we created was what um, called AI Cheat Sheet, which um, was just an interactive tool that allows you to ace AI basics. And the key thing was curating 20 words that are normally used in media or used in conversations that are associated with artificial intelligence. And then given 140 characters, 
um, in a given definition of 140 characters on what these words were. And one of the things was autonomous cars and explaining the difference between automation and autonomous cars. One of the things we had is what can AI achieve? It's in Netflix, it's in Spotify, it's in probably most of the applications we use. It's really just smart algorithms, but getting people to understand that. Then one of the things we had is what can AI do? And given that for people to initially express their own viewpoints. So one of the challenges in that project there actually was, um, at first it was loads of women who actually used the tool and gave the comments. Then when it got picked up by like all the news, the tech news publications and things like that, product hunt, it got overwhelmingly, the percentage dropped to have loads of um, white men who worked in the technology and design industry. So for us in that, where it went viral, was really good, but we failed because we didn't get the diversity of people that we wanted, or we didn't get people outside of the tech world to express their own viewpoints and be able, because that's where the key thing is. And so that was like a big thing for me at Cogus was that I'm here, I have all these conversations all the time, but I want to have it with somebody that doesn't know this stuff, that doesn't know this world, and get them to have that viewpoint. Should my Uber driver be an autonomous vehicle? Should I drive an autonomous vehicle? Should an autonomous vehicle be on the streets? You know, how do I know that my kids are safe? All of those things are important conversations that we're not having. And so for me, I was very big on having that. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, that's cool. I am... Um... I wanted it was important to get that point in from, from where you were recently talking to I saw through social media and reviews it was a really really good conversation you guys had but I want to jump into one of the projects you've done uh, which is helping communities ride mm. and I'm going to kind of paraphrase but what I've liked about it is just your analysis or the sort of the co-analysis that mobility from things like shared cycles in particular is very exclusive and actually very privileged as well because mm. it primarily focuses areas in which a public body or an organized organizing body can serve yeah. which typically typically means to be central mm. business districts or central yeah. tourist districts but um, you know cities like London but everywhere from yeah. cities uh, around the world I mean London's not as big as obviously somewhere like yeah. Tokyo and Mexico City, but we're having exclusive mobility. Mm-hmm. So kind of, um, and Aricelli, obviously a lot of the research has recently been done for the um, Neuroscience of Cities playbook. Uh, a lot of your awareness on what has happened through infrastructure and services, how impacts on mobility form uh, a lot of sort of socioeconomic ghettos. So I think it's worth, but once that sort of Alex talks, I think coming in with some of the insights that you've certainly researched mm-hmm. and delivered in the in the playbook that we did. So, uh, but yeah, tell us a little bit more about uh, helping communities ride. Okay, so that project was actually commissioned um, by a university and a local council to sort of um, looking at circular economy and the future of mobility. So circular economy is basically right now we live in a linear economy. So you buy this microphone we're using for this podcast, eventually it, it breaks down, we throw it away, we go buy a new one. Where the circular economy's concept is, okay, um, Josh, you want to set up a podcast service. Okay, you know what? You pay a monthly, You pay. let's say you pay monthly for it. Every time the microphone goes wrong, we repurpose it, we give you a new one. And it just becomes this circular effect where there's no waste. It isn't about sustainability, it's about things we use, materials, products, they get repurposed for new things. And so one of the challenges was how do you sort of use circular economy to f- facilitate mobility? And so at the time we just had mobility and it was really about the freedom to move. That's really what the dictionary definition is. It. And it was like, okay, let's, when, you know, circular economy talks a lot about ways and we're like, okay, let's explore bikes. 
Um, and so we spent, there's like a really detailed case study that we have, which isn't on the community website for various reasons. Um, but it was like, first we started off exploring mobility in the UK, in London, sorry, uh, because of a very London-centric pro- um, project. We looked at bicycles, so we looked at what's currently been done. We saw that, okay, cool, one of the challenges. It's where cycling's increased, it's still the same demographic of people that cycle. Mm. Um, there was loads of cultural attitudes to cycling in London, a lot of fear, a lot of panic. And when we look at like the schemes that have been set up, like this and then the bike schemes, they were in zone one and zone two and pretty expensive, you know. And so that was a challenge there. It was like how do we sort of create this this sort of circular economical bike service, but it's also community orientated. So one of the things we came up with was this concept of Riders Digest, um, which was essentially, um, there's loads of like so much unused bikes, like universities have them, police stations have them, even buildings have people that lock bikes and never come back. And it was like, how do we repurpose these bikes and put this into this community system where it's based on the community to facilitate this bike sharing. So one of the ideas was it has an company with an application. So off my head, some of the things was like you can book a bike, you could ride with a buddy, um, you get fitness tips. It was just, I, I don't remember how the whole context, but yeah, yeah. the whole principle of the system was the bikes get, goes into the system, it gets repurposed, and it gets shared between this community. So it's like a, it's like a community currency where money isn't shared, but what happens is that, okay, you, you store a bike in your house, or you look after the bike, or you repurpose it in your cafe, you get certain points. There are just certain things, but really about helping the community ride, especially where you've got like obesity is a big issue in cities. It was like, how do we facilitate this in a nice way? How do we rechange the attitudes to cycling and making it much more safer and making it more community thing? So that's why it's touted as helping communities ride because that was a key thing. You know, a lot of my work is actually really driven about how do you use technology to sort of facilitate people to have the agency to dictate dictate what they want to do with their lives. And Mm -hmm. so... That was a really interesting project. Were there um, any sort of human uh, discoveries that you noticed in perhaps any interviewing people or research about their sort of lack of, you know, affordances of mobility? I think it's like, it's just the cultural attitudes to it. I think if, let's think of, you look at your cycle superhighway and you've got people going to like Harfers or like Rafa and like spending like £2,000 on bikes and these bikes are really serious bikes and and people already feel uncomfortable being at a cycle super um, highway waiting at the traffic light and just seeing people in kits and dominant bikes and even they want to speed past you and stuff like that. There's just so much of these, a lot of it was a lot, there's loads of cultural attitudes. Like I have this mapped out like a presentation on like people's attitudes and stuff. But for my, it's just literally about redefining and re-educating people. That was like a, a key thing off my head if I can remember um, I don't remember it's like two years ago so I don't even remember <laughs> um, it no more but it was a really it's a really 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 good project I'm so happy that you brought that up because it's something that people don't really talk about with us so that's really yeah that's really nice I, I think it, it's huge to uh, sort of me personally for sure but I think a lot of work we do at Centric but I mean that's why I thought saw this question and why um, Aricelli is also on this podcast as well but I mean from from the work that we recently did for the um, Neuroscience for Cities playbook I mean this was a huge uh, element of the affordance of mobility so picking up from where Alex has just sort of laid out where his observations and those sort of cultural 
uh, need to change? What was what was sort of the uncoverings that you noticed as a as a neuroscientist, as someone looking at how do we unearth these kind of uh, human problems from a more strategic point of view? Well, what's really interesting to me, because I'm a neuroscientist, is where where is the through line between infrastructure into human biology? Because part of why people don't link it is because it seems at first glance that those two things are completely divorced from each other. How would something like a bridge or a bus have anything to do with human biology? But when you think and you break down transport as very simply, it's access. It provides you access to a resource and resource can be work, it can be food or it can be recreation it links you and so then from there when you think about what is the quality of that transportation that you're that you're taking and by quality i mean the quickness and access to it do you walk two miles to get to 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 your bus stop to your train how expensive is it for you for you to ride ride it or access it and then what is the length of time that takes you to get from point a to point b and that from that point you get into the human um, very, very quickly. So, for example, if you have a um, single mom that has to spend two and a half hours one way to get to work and then two and a half hours back to, to get to her family because the bus is the cheapest way for her to get from point A to point B, you're now taking six hours of every day or nearly six hours of her day, if I did the maths right, um, away from her children. Time that she could have, number one, spent reinforcing and re-educating her child, two, time that she could have spent studying, to, in the case of America, getting her GED or getting another point of access to education, or C, taking a course to maybe become a nurse or, be, or elevate the current, the current job that she, is, that she is holding. And so then you are stagnating an entire demographic of people. And then from there, we can really get into the biology um, from, from that perspective, because what does it mean for a child to spend that much time away from a caretaker what is in the nutritional access to it and also even even at the at the transportation what does it mean to be spending um five hours sorry the number is five not six can't add um five hours in in sustained amount of traffic inhaling all those toxins and so you then can see very clearly how not only how transport in something like infrastructure completely links to someone's quality of life, to someone's biology, but also what are we doing as people that are creating cities um, if we are not trying to bring everybody into conversation, if we're not trying to get every person in a city, all the citizens, up and, and running if, if we're creating infrastructure that leaves, in a very literal way, people behind. So... I think a lot of people who do create cities, so if we put like local authorities, municipalities, uh, whatever terms we want to use that are used around the world, I think they do endeavour to to try and make cities inclusive, but there are perhaps sort of their, their things they can't see. And would you be fair to say that it, it is often a mobility affordance that is something they're not aware that is actually allowing a person to perhaps develop into their city rather than against it? I'm going to say it's things that they don't want to see more than that they can't see. Um, But this brings us to 
are possibly more to our conversation. You need people that look like me and Alex in this conversation because whilst we'll have a whilst we may not be living it directly ourselves, we have a relative that's living it. We've or we would have had a relative that's living this reality. Therefore, our access and our awareness to these problems becomes more obvious than someone who has spent their time removed from that and they literally their perception is not there so i think it needs to start with bringing people of different types of experiences and how and of cities to the conversation about urban planning because then you get what do you call it the the blind spots covered but Mm. you want to say something to that no, I, I agree with um, um, Arisen, um, uh, on that. That empathy is the biggest challenge mm. we have. I think that's even when we talk mm. about UX, user experience. You know, you say, "Oh, you're your UX experience designer. What's your go?" And obviously, that goes empathy. How do you, you know, maybe certain challenges are not being solved because people are not maybe empathetic or they're not aware. And I think for me, in my journey. I've had to be very conscious that my my understanding of the world is different and I need to use that to the benefit of others. So going into meeting rooms and saying, why have we not focused on this user group? We should focus on this user group. You know, I, I wrote, worked on a project with the BBC um, in May for like the month of May and that was all about digital storytelling formats um, for BBC News. And the stories, the content of the stories that we said we should explore that project was like knife crime and like the ring rush because those are things that the the target demographic for this project was um, under 26 come from different socioeconomical backgrounds with a big emphasis on racial diversity so it was like these are individuals who are maybe coming from this lower socioeconomical backgrounds where knife crime is like this current problem but the media hasn't really told the stories in the way that they could resonate with or is told it from a very biased perspective so one of the ideas we worked on was something called perspectives and that was like you had um a text article then you had six different perspectives so you had the victim who's been um sort of challenged by knife then you had the gang member then you had the police chief then you had a professor of criminology then you had the anti-violence campaigner and then also with knife crime one of the biggest issues the music draw music which has been which some media publications have used as the blame for this knife crime rise as so you had like a dj talking about knife crime and that was like sharing those different perspectives to get people to so you get people who come from lower socioeconomical backgrounds to get a different viewpoint or to get them to feel like their perspective is being heard um and that was from my own understanding of the world growing up in peckham which has obviously been gentrified right now but if I take it back 10 years ago, wasn't the most attractive people to move into, didn't really have all these things going on. And it was very much, um, there was a knife crime epidemic and issues going on in that area. So my perspective definitely is something I've really tried to bring to how we create things. And I think my work speaks for that quite a lot. Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to come to one of your pieces as well, because it there's a... Um there's a similarity in, in some sense because I was doing some research recently for, for a client and we were looking at cities and kind of questioning are cities sexist and uh, the reality is they are coming out and a lot of places like uh, Manhattan a lot of areas uh, of London not not directly but were actually designed for 
the man and, and work and that central business districts were designed in such a way to allow collisions, often of men in business in the early 20th century, to then commute uh, where need, where the atypical uh, sort of home carer was based. But obviously when you know, we have a, well, we're endeavouring to have a far more uh, democratic uh, and diverse workforce at the moment, but a lot of the things that we're noticing is that a lot of what we consider to be a normal building or uh, a commute, uh, a, a piece of transport that was perhaps designed early in the 20th century is now actually demonstrating its lack of inclusivity and this is everything from changing facilities to even where basic health facilities in perhaps a commercial or public building are laid um, to the very simple factor that you know a lot of doors uh, on old and new buildings are you know sometimes like three meters by you know two meters wide they, they're big big things I was in a new uh, development recently, I won't say where, but it was a door that was three meters high, huge steel frame, um, full of glass as well itself. I'm six foot three, and I and, and I work out, and I had trouble opening this door. Mm. And I was looking at it, and, and I was thinking, how on earth is this an inclusive city in the 21st century when we are still making facilities made for only the fullest, the strongest, and the most able? And it's a far representation to allow someone to say yeah, this city's for me, when they constantly come up against physical elements that meet their perhaps uh, mental uh, requirements. And it, it got me thinking about what you, um, what you did with Ping, uh, the app in helping, and again, please correct me if anybody's it's understanding your, you were ensuring that there was full diversity, representation from an authentic voice, that it wasn't this kind of just like, you know, fake, oh, let's sprinkle a bit of diversity, is what are actually uh, all these different groups. And... You know, so when we talk about diversity and representation uh, in one in a digital device, it's one thing. Let's now look at it at, from a city's perspective. And I kind of want to ask, and this is going to go to both of you first, Alex, and then you, Araceli. Um, you know, diversity is a very easy thing to do in branding, but it's it's a little bit more complicated in cities. And I think we're perhaps failing at looking at from a culture and a customs perspective. So let's start opening that. If you want to take anything from Ping to kind of start the conversation. Um, so what I would say with Ping is that it was founded by Carl Martin. He's a very um, person who was very driven about building an inclusive world through connecting different people with different stories, different backgrounds, different, you know, genders, different races, um, sexuality, everything was literally what was his goal. And so he really wanted that to be communicative in everything he did. And I think diversity is very passive, but inclusivity is active. And I think for us, it was like, you know, when, when we were commissioned, we were doing a lot of like work around trying to improve the onboarding experience. So we thought, okay, why don't we can, and also let's look at some branding collateral. So one of the things we did in that project was actually go to speak to different groups of people um, like if you see in, in the project there it was like we had like um, a, a one of the sort of avatars that we created was a woman with a hijab and for that particularly it was going to like Amalia Amalia's um, they were media publication for Muslim women um, do really great stuff and we went to them it was like okay we want to create representation we want to create things that sort of communicates to a Muslim woman how does this look? How does this feel? What should we What should we think about? You know, we had all these discussions and we learned so much stuff. And it's like, if you bring it to physical space, you know, let's look at the disabled toilet, for example. Loads of disabled people will tell you that that doesn't even, the way how it's designed doesn't even work. 
Mm. It doesn't even take into fact that different disabilities. Mm. It's very much done in one size fit all. There you go. It's probably more comfortable for a what abled person to sit in a disabled toilet than you know um, than somebody who is disabled. And the challenge is, is you know, how do we? We need these different opinions and we need these different stories. Like I said, it has to be active. So we, you know, creating the cities have to be active in getting these different experiences and not basically label it in that your experience is valid or your opinions are unvalid. And it's a challenge. It's a big challenge. So I don't want to come here with a fairy tale story and say we can do it. But it's important of us hearing these different stories in order to shape you know, different things and even the people who are building these things probably need to essentially um, we need to swap you know we need to swap could it could it be you know is there a disabled architect who understands this is what's right for individuals and he's got his own experiences or has experiences or days experiences and they've also got experiences of others that can necessarily shape that you know um, or is it like changing how do you get that's kind of like a thing for me, it's how do you get, you know, uh, it's a challenge even with digital and technologies, getting different p- opinions and perspectives. There's something by um, Microsoft where they created something called the Inclusive Design Framework, which is really interesting, uh, if anybody wants to look that up, which tries to look at different people and different challenges and how you can sort of facilitate your product to work for them. And it's like creating those frameworks that we could adhere to or we could hold ourselves accountable to that these things are taken into consideration and um, they could be achieved. I mean, this echoes a lot of the work that you're talking to Danny about from a centric perspective, Chelly. Do you want to talk more about that from the, from the point of view of who is, de- you know, who is designing a system for whom? Uh, yeah, so I think for this one, I'm going to give a, a rounded circular answer. So one of one of the theories that gets floated around is something called the extended mind theory. And this is very, very philosophical, but that we are um, a reflection or the cities or what is out externally from our heads is, an, is a reflection of our internal musings, thoughts, happenings, and vice versa. And so if we take that perspective, we have to then talk about culture we live in a culture in the West where we prioritize the self, where we prioritize, you know, legacy, or we want monuments. We're obsessed by by power, and that already starts the conversation away from empathy, away from inclusivity, um, because we don't want people to feel, well, we don't want everyone to feel comfortable because power is sustained. You can only sustain power if there is some sort of hierarchy. And you can see that in our buildings and in our cities. So I think we have to start with rearranging our culture in the West um, and then working towards empathy. And empathy has two strands. There is cognitive empathy and then there's emotional empathy. And I'm talking about cognitive empathy. So how do you extend your mind as far away as possible from the tip of your nose? Like go out with your thoughts um, and observe and going to what Alex is saying, go and ask questions to different people. Try to put yourself in the viewpoint of as many different people as possible so you can understand more. And from what you were asking about Danny, so Danny is doing his postdoc at UCL on navigation 
And something so simple as creating, and by simple I mean a direct way where you would think, okay, if we're creating a technological um, tool that is going to enable people that are visually variant to navigate cities and their buildings, <laughs> probably the first place to start would be to understand the navigational systems of someone who is visually different, and yet that conversation hasn't taken place. So he started to look at wayfinding technology and he's categorized um, and defined the, the different holes in this type of technology simply coming from not having, again, that cognitive empathy to go, how does somebody that cannot see, what, what other senses are they using? How do they interpret this information? And what he was saying is that the instructions, which is so easy, right? So the instructions were, a lot of them were, would say, well, come out of the station and head north. For someone that is blind, that makes no sense because how do you get a sense of what is north? Where, how would you find that entrance? So it's already failed, um, that, that piece of technology. And so getting people to go, okay, what, how does the human experience this? How does the human being going to perceive this? How is a human being going to, to, interact with it because that's another interesting word interaction all of us humans we interact with things that which means we either adapt them or we break them or we um uh or we change them and that's the thing that i think sometimes people that are building these tech tools forget that we're not constant as humans we're constantly interacting with things and changing things i think it like i really love the example you used because um, us to the uh, digital um, creative agency or studio, they have a book, Humanizing Autonomy, where they um, spend a lot of time looking at autonomous vehicles. And one of the things they identified is that a lot of their autonomous vehicles are designed without wing mirrors. And if you are somebody who's visually impaired, one of the things they learn is that somebody who's, um, who's visually impaired, they use wing mirrors for orientation. Yeah. and like but you've designed these cars and removed the ring mirrors now because it's autonomous so you don't need to do um, centre mirror left mirror left whatever indicator <laughs> trying to remember this for my driving lessons <laughs> um, and but somebody who's visually impaired in the back of that car needs those ring mirrors to understand what's going on so mm-hmm. we're not having these conversations and we're not bringing those people to this development and that's so that even changes who's developing these tools. We need, we need, we need those people to be a big role, a big important contributory role into what we're building and shaping, which is something that is not really being done. An empathy risk assessment is what everybody needs. Okay. Just whatever you're gonna build, just go to, go to a risk assessment that is based on a lot of empathy and go what is everything that possibly could go wrong Mm. and then move from there. So you are automatically removing yourself from that. And hopefully that removes bias by going, where is, where can everything go? Where can this be misinterpreted? Where can this be misused? Um, so we get to see where those potholes as it were are on the road. But so two of the topics we've just spoken about have been about, uh, disability 
or you know lack of full mobility whether it be physically through uh, arms legs back whatever it may be um and also sort of visual impairment but is that the only type of thing that we're missing in the conversation i mean i've got two people with me now who are part of another organization and group um about representation like we've kind of skirted around this issue on this podcast but i know that you guys are uh, very informed with strong opinions about what inclusion means from developing I would just say cities and a sort of civic nature and I'm just going to open this up here if we're, if we're saying okay we've got to think about like disabled access and we've got to think about how navigation works for those with visual, visually impaired that's just one way of looking at empathy for those who don't have uh, a, an already leg up what else are we missing? Do you mean neurodiversity? Could be. <laughs> um, okay, well, I can do mine. I go quick. So I would say, yes, we're missing the, neuro, the neurodiverse. You said it already. Cities are made for completely a normative, normative population. You have to be abled. Um, you can't be stressed. You can't be, you can't, you can't be old um, in order to be able to navigate cities. So we do have to think about things like what happens with somebody on the autism spectrum disorder? How are they getting from point A to point B, those beeps of the horns? How is that causing a point of stress for them that could trigger a panic attack, for instance, that then debilitates and changes their entire day? Um, and then equally, how do we democratize um, third spaces. So one case study that is constantly haunts me in my head because I don't know what the solution is and I don't even know how you would start having the conversation really is um, a, a study was done of the Manhattan High Line and it's something that I have observed as well over here um, where, so for example, the High Line, it's right in the middle or intersects a, a, a neighborhood in Manhattan that is racially very diverse. And I mean, most of Manhattan is, but anyway, so, so it's, very, it's very racially diverse and, and yet the High Line is predominantly used by white people. And there's no sign, obviously, that says black and um, brown people don't come in. There's no, there's no barriers to entry. You can enter the High Line from very different access points. There's no payment to it. So technically, through all the logistics, it is inclusive. So then the question is, why aren't there any people of color or of the lower socioeconomic backgrounds that are around that area engaging with it? And you see that at Hampstead Heath as well. Hampstead Heath is surrounded by different estates. Why aren't there kids of color playing football on the Heath? Um, and I don't know what the answer to that question is. Because the other side of the coin of that is, is that these are the demographics that could do with access to these types of resources um, to be able to exercise, as, as Alex already said, obesity is a big problem in the city and so is diabetes. Unfortunately, the, 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 the target um, area for those, for those two things, a lot of it is of people of color. Um, in America, it's its own beast and its own reasoning for it that is point of slavery onwards, which we won't get into that conversation. But over here, it's a very different beast as to why, 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 the, why that occurs. So you would think, okay, so now you've got a park, you can exercise, you can access things, and yet it's not happening. And I don't know if we are 
giving subliminal messaging messages or culturally directed messaging that that tells people you're not included in this conversation and i don't know what that is and it and it plagues me because i can't i can't solve it through neuroscience and i can't solve it through my tools um, because i don't know why why that would be the case mm. i think i think for me i was why um this conversation was going on i was thinking about what would i share i think it's maybe looking at social housing mm. and looking at how social housings they're really designed dis- really bad like really disproportionate like really or like when you know breach this architecture and which is something that now is a trend people love it but <laughs> there was a lot of issues associated with that type of building style um and looking at grenfell for example mm where you studied that people who were less able to at the 23-4 of a building, stuff like that is, you know, it's like, what the heck is going on? Like, loads of conversations there. So disproportionately in the UK, you know, the lower working class have always been at a disadvantage by those in power. And so the question is, is how, if you're going to build this inclusive city, it's to sort of rebalance power relationships. You know, during my um, postgraduate studies, I wrote a whole 6,000-word paper on this and how, you know, the community needs to be involved in urban regeneration projects and not it just being this, oh, we're doing a conversation, come down. Okay, this is a conversation. We're doing this. Bye, thank you. We've done the conversation because we need to tick our boxes that we've consulted the public. But rather, the, you know, urban regenerators um, basically saying to the community, okay, we've been tasked to do this. What community do you want? And how do we co-design this together? Which is a dream, but it's something I would love to push for, is that co-designing of a community in a city with the different players, different people, and it's not this consultation-based thing. It's a very active co-designing of the space, Mm. which is hard. So we're kind of holding on to a legacy of... um, segregation for want of a better word not necessarily well probably in some cases intentional you know Mm. uh, a lot of commercial campuses have been designed to exclude members of the public i think a lot of real estate developers are changing that parks themselves can often be on the edges of uh, highways so again you're looking at sort of almost like subliminal barriers preventing oh you know do not cross that path you know uh, side of things so but i think what's nice and i'm i'm sort of coming to the end of this Rather than I almost, um, I ask people what type of tech they always want to see cities change, but I wonder whether it, it is tech that you think is the most important. It, it appears to be communication. It means probably an openness, uh, probably a, a level of humility to come from institutions to to be accepting of different voices, to accept they're wrong. I mean, would you, would you say that's fair? I mean, we've let's let's start to sort of wrap up this conversation. So I want to kind of know your opinion on that. Um, if you want to take it individually to then say in a very quick line what your most important piece of technology you think is going to come through in the next sort of five years that's going to be really important for cities or what you want to come through they're trying Uh, to choose at the moment who speaks (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think because you asked me what was my thoughts on COGX which I didn't get to answer um, but I think one of my because I love COGX, I love the um, the team behind who set it up. I think it's a good conference, a good platform. Those of interesting speakers do really cool stuff. I think one of the challenges is this emphasis that technology is going to solve problems. Technology is never a solution, it's an enabler. 
And so for me, I've always seen technology in that particular type of way. And so if we're going to implement technology, it needs to enable something. I don't. I think for us to maybe from this conversation, for me, if let's say I was commissioned by like a council to come up with a tech solution, I'd probably reply back and say, "No, it's not a tech solution. There's actually some frameworks we have to develop. We've got to change the way how the council thinks. We've got to change the way everything. We've got to we've got to develop this new culture. This culture of openness, cognitive empathy, inclusivity." then that would then shape what we then build in order to enable the community. Um, and I think it's like going back a step and starting there, then building something. That's kind of like where um, I stand, is very much like we, I think we rush too much to like think of a technological solution and we don't realize we still got some steps to do. So that's kind of like how I, think of the space just based on the conversation we've had today um, that's that's not my thoughts um, in terms of the technology in five years that's hard I don't, I don't think I actually have one so um, I don't know what's, what's your thoughts on this mine yeah uh, I'm really intrigued in how augmented reality is going to kick in more in the cities I think it's going to bring a lot of transparency um, I think it can bring a lot of change and adaption when we're looking at plans, when we're looking at uh, new town centres, new developments. I think once you can enable vast uh, groups of people to perhaps just put on a headset, use their, you know, use little Google uh, cardboard, whatever it is, stick their smartphone in and start interacting with going, hey, why is this, why is this light coming through here? Yeah, why is this road here? What happens if we change that? So f- for me, that's what I'm very okay. interested in seeing adaption in the city with tech. Okay, so now you touched on augmented reality. I'm now going to maybe go. So one of the challenges of augmented reality right now is that it's very screen-based. So you have to look down on your phone to interact with the, in- the interface itself. Now this is where lighting systems come in place. LED lights, how do we somehow create this augmented reality using lighting technologies and lighting systems which we could not look at Google Maps maybe on a phone like this but how can we look at it from the environment and the space because that's where that augmented reality benefits really kicks in but you know that still comes with environmental questions infrastructure questions energy questions all of those things but that would be pretty interesting to see how how do we take augmented reality out of the screen and put it into a much more real-world environment and how do you facilitate that? How does that work? Which is a long way to go. But definitely, if you can get it out of the screen, because we're very much screen-based. If we walk around the city on our phones like mm. this, then what the heck? That's like, defeats the whole purpose of everything. So it's like, <laughs> get it off the screen and get it in the real-world environment. That would be really interesting. Thanks, Alex Saracelli. Your sort of closing comment on the, on the question and your opinion on what technology you think should be coming through? Well, my first part of my answer would be that it doesn't matter what kind of technology we use. As long as we've got poverty, we're not doing anything. Sorry, got to speak up. Um, yeah, uh, I have a huge, well, not just me. It, it Poverty to me is the fundamental rudimentary until we eradicate poverty and homelessness from cities, we are behaving like savages, 100%. Because poverty means that people's brains cannot develop well, people then can't get a good education, and we are stifling people from the from the very, um, I think, 
primordial human right of living a life of quality. So that's my first thing. So as far as I'm concerned, like IoT, AI can shove it until we can fix this primordial problem. The second thing is we got to reduce toxicity levels in cities. It is killing us. And it's not hyperbole. It is doing so much damage to our system. So the technology that I'm interested in is how do we create, um, the, how do we put in technology that shortens um, construction um, time on site so we're reducing traffic and we're not getting big lorries through city centers that then increase traffic and increases all of our pollution that we're intaking? How do we create materiality that absorbs the toxicity levels? Passive homes, passive buildings, that's my jam because if we can start to get smarter in using our natural resources to to create our environments, we're going to be in a in a much better place. And and I do think that revolution is coming. There's um, Roosevelt Island is going to be the host to one of the biggest projects in passive buildings. And if it's successful and it does well, which I'm sure it will. Um, I think a lot of other construction companies and um, developers are going to have to go, okay, we have to change this because people are going to want that kind of product. Because if you're recycling and if you are paying attention to your other environmental issues, you're not going to want to go into a building that contributes to toxicity and to climate change, etc. So I would say that would be my technological, but first poverty. Guys, thank you very much for coming on the City Centric Podcast. Thank you, Jess. Thank you. So a massive thank you to Alex and Aricelli for their time in coming onto the podcast. If you do want to get in touch with Alex, the best way to get in touch with him is through his website, which hosts a whole series of other links, links to his projects, links to his websites, uh, his business websites, that is, but also blogs, his social media accounts, etc. And that is alexfefega.com, and that's A L E X. F-E-F-E-G-H-A dot com, Alex Fafega. If you're interested in getting in touch with Aricelli, then all you need to do is hop onto the website, thecentriclab.com. It's thecentriclab.com, and you'll see contact details there. So thanks very much. hope you enjoyed the podcast. If anyone has any questions, if anyone thinks of an idea for the podcast, just drop us an email. Just write to hello at thecentriclab.com. If you do have the time, please do head over to iTunes, give us a review, hopefully a good rating, and that really helps. Thanks for your time. Speak to you soon.